Give the people what they want. Give the people what they want. Give the people what they want. Your weekly movement news roundup. Give the people what they want. Your weekly movement news roundup brought to you every week by People's Dispatch. That's peoplesdispatch.org with Prashant and Zoe. And by Globetrotter, that's me, Vijay. Welcome. It's the 1st of October, 2021. Um, interesting week, interesting stories. Perhaps um, the most startling story, which prevents the people from getting what they want, was the attempt by various agencies in the world. Let's leave that rather um, unspecified, Prashant. Various agencies around the world to silence not only Julian Assange, but to terrify journalists uh, before they tell the truth, the truth, which is what the people want. Prashant, what have been the new revelations around the story of Julian Assange's incarceration? Right, Vijay, we've been talking uh, in this show very often about the Julian Assange case, about the you know absurdities of the case that uh, is being filed against Assange, the reason why he's still in detention. But the report by Yahoo News in, over the past couple of days actually paints a, a very horrifying picture as well. And that's because, of course, the headline itself is horrifying, which is that, you know, at the CIA, there were discussions to kidnap or what they call rendition. Basically, you take him out of where he was, which is the Ecuadorian embassy or even assassinate him. Now, some of this may have been just speculation or these kind of proposals. It, the report does say that Trump did ask about the possibility of having Assange assassinated. But I think the report also shows a much larger picture, which is the kind of workings within the US security establishment when somebody reveals what they do not want to be revealed. Now, there's a long history of Julian Assange revealing many of these things. We know that he revealed war crimes in Afghanistan. He and WikiLeaks, then the you know the cables, revealing a lot of very embarrassing secrets. In 2017, they released what is called the Vault Seven Files, which actually uh, expose the extent of the CIA's surveillance capacities, and this was seen as a huge embarrassment for them. So, uh, following this, the, what the report actually talks about is this extensive period following this, where the U.S. security establishment, especially the CIA, decides. And this is very important to note, CIA's that time head Mike Pompeo classifies WikiLeaks as a non-state hostile intelligence service. And I think this is something that every journalist in the world needs to sort of stand up and note. The fact that when threatened by information it did not want people to know, the United States was comfortable and quick terming a media organization as an intelligence service. And this is not just a, art of, a term of propaganda. Because what this permitted, according to U.S. law, was for the CIA and other agencies to actually take far more offensive actions. And this report reveals many of those actions, which is, you know, it is not only Assange who was targeted, it is other journalists and people associated with WikiLeaks. There are possibilities that their communication is completely intercepted. Uh, there is, uh, the report itself has officials claiming that we got good intelligence on, uh, you know, all people, people associated with WikiLeaks, where they were traveling, what kind of communications they were doing. There were attempts to disrupt the organization by promoting Discord, that kind of stuff. They chose not to uh, infiltrate it, but there were attempts to, uh, say, sow Discord in the organization. So the whole gamut of operations that you read about in science fiction, which you sort of, you know, or you watch in thriller movies, all of this was deployed against Julian Assange. And 
the you know the talk about assassinating him or or kidnapping him was actually the height of it and at that point the us justice department decides that you know what we need to speed up the prosecution of this case against him the indictment and it is in that context that the indictment is filed by the end of 2017 so what this report shows us is the very <clears throat> dirty underbelly of the united states security establishment and this is especially important now because this is not just some historical fact this has direct bearing on the case because this is the context in which this case you know the proceedings was sped up you know, there was talk about violating <clears throat> wikileaks freedom in every single way so this is the context in which this case was sped up and i think the courts it's a open question whether the courts will take this into account but what really remains to be seen is you know the lawyers definitely are going to raise it whether the courts will take it into account is a question um moving from the story of the um silencing of julian assange a journalist um an editor of a publication and you know very chilling evidence we moved to colombia where there has in fact been a report released uh, recently which shows that there has been killing of um social movement leaders uh, and others who attempt to lift the voices of of the people uh, zoe what is this report it's a one in a series of reports what's been happening in colombia well lots of things been happening um a lot of people are talking right now about jay balvin and his uh statements about reggaeton as a musical genre we're not going to go into that <laughs> but uh we will be talking about the really pressing situation in Colombia which is that um you know as we covered very extensively uh you know for several weeks um the violence uh executed against the people in the streets during the national strike um has been continually condemned by organizations across Colombia um you know as we had been following over 80 people were assassinated in the period of about 10 weeks on the streets participating in protests all of these mostly carried out by uh, members of Colombia's security forces and this was you know brought to different international bodies the inter-american human rights commission this was brought to united nations um the colombian government you know still hasn't really uh, you know taken this into account um and at the same time it's interesting because this week uh what we wanted to point out is that they actually arrested one of the leaders um you know who was very active in organizing this strike and has been really active over the past decade organizing with social movements with community organizations he was very active in um an environmental committee to protect one of Colombia's most sacred ecosystems the Paramo from you know a Canadian mining company that wanted to do a gold extraction he's been active in um urban movements trying to organize the city's poor uh, his name is Jimmy Mingero uh, and he was arrested this week accused of i mean he's been in the court hearings that have been taking place so far you know the judges have called him a terrorist um a criminal you know accusing him of many things and it's interesting the way the justice works in a country like Colombia where you have security forces killing over 80 people you know broadcast on international television this was one of the first times where you know this kind of violence received such you know widespread uh audience yet uh you know the focus of Colombia's judicial sy- system is on the social leaders is on the people who are organizing the people that want to change the system also notably this week um you know the national strike committee which is of course the platform of different trade unions 
social movements, political organizations, you know, that helped call for the uh, 28th of April strike. Um, they were out on the streets again because, you know, not only is the Colombian government persecuting trade union leaders, social movement leaders, not only are they not, you know, trying the police officers, the army uh, members who, you know, committed crimes, but they're also not following through on any of the commitments they've made with the people. You know, this strike that took place for over two months was, of course, about serious demands, about, you know, closing gaps of historic inequalities. I mean, this, the National Strike Committee basically presented 10 different bills that they want the Congress to pass. One is an emergency basic income, you know, free higher education, um, the establishment of a free public health care system in Colombia, the extremely privatized, very bureaucratic health system, access to health is one of the key issues, especially during the pandemic. And, you know, other such uh, laws that really would ensure a better life for Colombians. So not only, you know, are they not engaging in these negotiations, but they've refused to kind of push forward these laws. And so, of course, people are going to take the streets again. There were real concrete reasons for why the strike went on for so long, why it saw, you know, historic participation of Colombia's youth, of, you know, women, of many different sectors in society. And I think as the government fails to take action on the demands that they've raised, we're going to see a lot more of these mobilizations. You know, in November coming up, that will be the uh, two-year two anniversary of the, the strike that was begun in November 2019, wherein, you know, a young man, Dylan Cruz, was, you know, killed in the middle of the street, shot in the head by the police. These are all very important milestones in Colombia's, you know, movement history in these last couple of years. So we'll obviously be staying tuned to People's Dispatch. Well, that's an amazing story and it must be followed um, because after all, Colombia is going to lead into a presidential election and this will have some bearing on, on, on the politics of the country and so on. Uh, we saw recently at the CELAC meeting, the community of Latin American and Caribbean states, Colombia was missing in action um, in interesting uh, situation. Uh, I'm, I'm glad we are following it so closely at um, give the people what they want and at People's Dispatch. Uh, I've been following the story in Afghanistan over the course of, of well, now several decades. Um, and I was very interested because uh, of two developments. One, the Afghan government continues to have a very difficult time uh, making its uh, financial obligations because it's been cut off from international aid by and large. Some aid is coming in now. It's been cut off from any IMF relief. And of course, the $10 billion of Afghans' external reserves are being held um, in the New York Federal Reserve. They're not able to access it. Well, the economy minister of Afghanistan is an interesting man. His name is Kari Deen Mohammad Hanif. Um, and he's the one Tajik member of the cabinet. There are other minorities now in the redone cabinet of the Taliban. The first, uh, I guess, the first innings of the Taliban's cabinet, they were all Pashtuns. Then they brought in Mohammad Hanif, who's a Tajik, to run the economy. Mohammad Hanif is a senior Taliban leader. Um, he had been in the planning. Uh, he had been a planning minister in the first uh, uh, Taliban government. Well, what's interesting is he comes from Badakhshan uh, district in the very north of the country, and I was interested in this because Badakhshan and other uh, areas in that very northern part that borders Tajikistan is extraordinarily rich with minerals and metals, including lapis lazuli. Some of the world's best lapis lazuli comes there. 
during the government of ahmed karzai um, uh, sorry hamid karzai it was uh, well, it was said by his ministers that there's about a 3 trillion dollars worth of minerals and metals and other resources under the soil of of afghanistan that's an enormous amount of money um, for um, for a country the size of afghanistan most of those minerals are smuggled out there's a lot of corruption in fact many of the um, High officials of the government of Hamid Karzai and Ashraf Ghani faced corruption charges during their time uh, in power. Mohammed um, Hanif has made some small remarks about that uh, area and, and, and whether the Taliban government is going to be able to commandeer the resources of the country. I doubt it very much. And one of the reasons I doubt it is that the um, resistance to the Taliban is coming now largely from uh, old commanders who have a Tajik background. Now, interestingly, in the last few days, those 11 days, those spectacular 11 days when the Taliban rushed through northern uh, Afghanistan, this area is a majority Tajik area and it fell to the Taliban without bloodshed in many cases, including Badakhshan and the capital Faizabad, uh, went to the Taliban rather quickly. Uh, it looks like there is not enormous support among the Tajik people. Uh, of Afghanistan for another protracted war. On the other hand, across the border from Badakhshan in Tajikistan, um, the government of President Rahman has um, allowed the, uh, you know, this group of at least three leaders to take residence in, in Tajikistan and they fashioned themselves as a resistance committee. This includes Ahmad Masood, the son of Ahmad Shah Masood. It includes Amanullah Saleh, who was uh, a close asset of the CIA and, of course, had been the security chief uh, in the government of Hamid Karzai. Later, under Ashraf Ghani, he was the vice president. He was basically considered Washington's direct man in the Ashraf Ghani government. He is there as well. And with them is Abdul Latif Pedram, who's the National Congress of Afghanistan head. Mr. Pedram has a big bounty on his head from the Taliban. They accuse him of a range of things. I actually cannot verify anything about whether he is guilty because the fact of the matter is 9 out of 10 of the people in the government of Ashraf Ghani were guilty of something or the other. Well, the fact is that I'm, I'm afraid that a lot of the mineral smuggling, particularly lapis lazuli and gold, um, in the Badakhshan area is going to be used now by these forces to finance their, uh, their resistance. And I'm afraid that this is going to prolong the war in Afghanistan. Um, it was, it's a bit of a surprise to see um, President Ramon give refuge to these groups. And we haven't yet seen if he's going to allow them to start an armed struggle from Tajikistan into Afghanistan. But this is something um, you know, we have to keep an eye on. Let, let's see uh, how far it goes and, and what kind of chaos is going to be created as a consequence. A rich country, Afghanistan, very poor people, a great tragedy. Another country with great riches, awful poverty, Sudan. Prashant, what's happening in Sudan? Right, Vijay. Uh, Sudan, again, one of the countries we cover a lot also because of the fact that it in some senses marks it's an it's a very good example of the conflicts and contradictions of a lot of processes in that region it's not only sudan it's algeria egypt many of those countries so the news last week of course was that there was a coup attempt this was on september 21st and there were you know some movements as far as tanks were concerned some of officers were arrested 
And this really sort of brought to the fore the divisions between, uh, say, the ruling establishment in Sudan right now, which is primarily two sections. One is the military and, you know, who which really control the government right now, whose representatives are led by the current president of the Sovereignty Council, General Burhan. And there's a civilian government led by Prime Minister Abdullah Hamdok. So there was a lot of, there were allegations thrown on both sides. The military said that the civilians were responsible for creating distrust, uh, you know, in military ranks. The civilian government, of course, sort of pushing it, you know, pushing back against it. But I think what is more important to note is that uh, rather than just seeing this as a coup attempt, you know, so many coup attempts take place and, and you know, say a conflict between two sections, we sort of also want to look at it from the perspective of the mass protests which took place in Sudan from December 2018. Those were the protests which overthrew the President Omar al-Bashir in 2019 and those protests and those protesters have continued. So our colleague Pawan, of course, spoke to some of the protesters and protesting sections over there, uh, which is very interesting because while a lot of the conversation was about the coup, there was actually another incident which took place a few days later, which was on September 26th. And this basically involved military and police officials being withdrawn from a very crucial government department. And this government department was the one responsible for confiscating the assets of the old regime, of uh, Omar al-Bashir and his allies. So suddenly, one fine morning, all these forces were withdrawn. What was very interesting was that there was a massive mobilization to protect the building. So you, you saw people living in the vicinity, the neighborhood resistance committees, which are, you know, the uh, backbone of all these protests in Sudan over the years, mobilizing quickly. And there was this huge crowd which gathered in front of that building. And that basically, you know, made sure that the building was safe. Uh, by that time, officials had given calls for people to gather. And soon after a while, I think probably the military junta was taken aback. Security forces returned. But this is of great symbolic importance to protesters on the ground there because, you know, they're very clear about what is happening in Sudan right now, which is that even after Omar al-Bashir was overthrown, there was a compromise between the army, his old regime, and certain political parties. A civilian government was formed, but the army still has the upper hand. And not just the upper hand in terms of governance, it also has the upper hand in terms of the economy. Estimates say that maybe even 80% of the economy could be controlled by the army in various ways. According to at least one of our sources, uh, even in terms of uh, professions like, you know, uh, owning chickens and running poultry farms, the army is involved. So that's the extent of the army's role in the country. And this has also meant that there's a huge amount of immunity for the army, which means that the crimes committed by them at various points of time, including in 2019, there has been no justice. For this justice to happen, there has to be a legislative council. And I think that is one of the core demands right now of the people that Legislative Council be formed. Yesterday, that is the 30th of September, there were again mass protests, you know, called by all the organizations which were which had organized the Sudanese revolution then. And they demanded that the transitional government be a civilian one, that the military be moved out of uh, governance and its structures. And I think that core demand is what is going to animate and drive the protests in Sudan in the days to come because... The people on the ground are very clear that they have learned from some of the mistakes in the past in their own country, in other countries, that they do not want to be demobilized in their own words. They don't want to, you know, okay, the dictator has been overthrown, let's go back home. That is really not the way they're seeing things. They see this as a process, as a process of continuous mobilization. And this is something that they are very sure that they're going to continue. So that's where we are with Sudan.
It's a very important story. Yovid, give the people what they want, brought to you every week from People's Dispatch. You can see People's Dispatch follows stories in Sudan, in Colombia, places like that where you're not going to find those stories anywhere else, peoplesdispatch.org. Um, I've been uh, looking, it's a little eclectic, this piece of our, of our show today. I've been looking at the politics in the G7 countries. That's the group of seven countries set up in 1974. Um, in Japan, for instance, Prime Minister Suga decided I've had enough. Uh, he hung up his skates and said, I'm not going to be uh, on the ice any longer. And then his party had to decide who's going to lead them. Well, they chose a veteran. Um, they chose perhaps the dullest candidate of the lot. Um, Mr. Kishida is going to take over from Suga. Safe hands for the United States. No problem in Japan. On that flank of Eurasia, nobody in the White House is going to lose any sleep. Uh, least of all, General uh, Milley, who has been beaten up a lot in the U.S. Congress recently over his um, revelations made by Bob Woodward and Paul Costa in a book where Milley apparently called the Chinese and said, hey, listen, Trump is not going to attack you. Um, well, Milley will be very satisfied to hear that Kishida is the new prime minister of Japan, satisfied because this means that nobody in Japan, at least in the higher circles, is going to question the role of the US military, um, either its bases on Japanese soil, including Okinawa, or along um, the coastline of China. So safe hands at that end of the spectrum. Um, matters are more complicated at the other end of Eurasia. We just saw an election in Germany where the result was entirely unsatisfactory uh, for those who want to report a story because it looks like, um, you know, every year the German chancellor makes a, a New Year's speech. And, um, you know, the leader of the Social Democratic Party, Olaf Schulz, hoped to be the one to make the New Year's speech for 2022. Looks like it might be Angela Merkel back. Uh, I think Mrs. Merkel didn't want to be the one making the speech. She was eager, in fact, like um, Premier Suga, to walk away into the sunset. But she may, be, she may have to wait a little longer. And the reason is that very serious negotiations are underway between Christian Linder of the Free Democrats and Annalena Baerbock of the Greens. The Greens and the uh, Free Democrats are completely antithetical political parties uh, in many respects, not all. Uh, in, in some respects, they are quite similar. Um, they are different in terms of how they want to use the state to tackle climate change. In terms of other things, they're quite similar. Um, it looks like the most possible or most probable coalition will be between the Social Democrats, the Free Democrats and the Greens. Although, Although never, ever, never, ever underestimate the power of the Christian Democrats in Germany to come back in. Um, again, no worries in the White House regarding the outcome in Germany. No worries, because the outcome in Germany is going to be entirely pro-Washington and will follow the Washington line as much as possible. In fact, in fact, they're probably relieved that Angela Merkel is no longer in charge because Mrs. Merkel had in the last few years been quite forthright with, for instance, Nordstrom II, the pipeline deal with Russia. She had been quite forthright in saying that Germany, if not Europe, needs to craft its own, um, its own foreign policy. The real sleep will be lost in France. Um, well, news comes again that Nicolas Sarkozy, a man, uh, the leader of the center-right, is going to be in house arrest for a year, found guilty of 
campaign malfeasance in the 2012 election. Nobody is talking in France about the money he took from Muammar Gaddafi to fund his previous election, but we'll keep that aside. Uh, meanwhile, on the far right, uh, matters are grim for Marie Le Pen as the um, television personality, um, Eric Zemmour, who I had never heard of before, has made a run and might in fact come into the presidential contest challenging Marie Le Pen and wait for this friends, Marie Le Pen, as you know, the far right politician, Eric Zemmour might be challenging Marie Le Pen from her right. Uh, so in France, we're going to have a politician even more to the right of Marie Le Pen will take some of her votes. Is this good for Emmanuel Macron? Emmanuel Macron bruised up, very unhappy, petulant because he feels France has been treated badly by the United States over the AUKUS deal. Will France push for Europe to have an independent foreign policy from the United States? Will the White House be losing sleep about the election in France? We'll look and see and follow this carefully. But as of now, Germany in relatively safe hands, Japan relatively safe hands, France, who's to say, who's to know? South of France, in Portugal, there is a tussle over money that is Venezuela's. Venezuela put that money into Portugal for Portugal's sake. What is Portugal doing about that Venezuelan money, Zoe? Well, Portugal is doing what many um, European countries and countries that are close to the United States are doing, which is they are keeping it and not allowing Venezuela to access it. Um, you know, we've discussed this. It's been happening in several occasions. You know, there's over, I think, seven billion dollars of Venezuelan money that's being essentially held hostage. They're unable to access it. They're unable to use it. They're unable to make payments with it. Um, you know, back a couple months back, uh, Venezuela attempted to make its final payment to the COVAX initiative to buy vaccines and a bank in Switzerland blocked the payment. Um, and they were unable to get these. Uh, I mean, they engaged in negotiations after, but, you know, these very important payments are blocked. What happened with uh, in Portugal with the Banco Novo is that, you know, they've had money in this bank for a while. They've been trying to engage in negotiations to get this money. Um, it's about $12.7 million, U.S. dollars, a lot of money. Um, and they've, you know, repeatedly asked, they actually attempted to use this money to make a payment to the Pan American Health Organization, again, for life saving uh, COVID, you know, supplies such as syringes, such as masks, other elements in order for Venezuela to combat the COVID-19 pandemic and support its other public health initiatives. Um, and this once again has been blocked. But in response to this, um, you know, a group of 37 uh, European parliamentarians um, wrote a letter to the CEO of Novo Bank acting, you know, asking him to respect international law and release these funds because, you know, as Venezuela and other countries have continually pointed out who also suffer from these sanctions is that, you know, while sanctions and, you know, unilateral course of measures are justified uh, by saying that these were are only used to target politicians, that it's really just about um, you know making a making a statement to these politicians and businessmen and other people who the U.S. wants to target. 
of course, the people who suffer are the are the Venezuelan people, are the Zimbabwean people, are the Cuban people who are unable to have access to food, to medicine. Um, you know, this is a clear case where Venezuela wants to use these $12 million to buy healthcare supplies, and they're unable to do that. This, you know, again, is in violation of international law. It's in violation of the UN Charter. Um, and so this recent letter hopefully will put more kind of steam behind this necessary demand to lift, you know, lift unilateral coercive measures, release specifically these funds so that Venezuela can, you know, make sure their public health system is as uh, effective as it can be and that people can get vaccines, that people can get the supplies that they need. So this was a really important move by these European parliamentarians, and we'll see how it uh, advances. There are also other several key legal battles underway in other parts of Europe, for example, in England with the Bank of England and Venezuela's gold that's being held there. So, you know, Venezuela has been quite proactive on several fronts trying to make sure they get access to this money and that it can be used to serve the people. And in that case, it, you know, it shouldn't, it shouldn't be blocked. Well, you have a little announcement to make before we close out our show today, Zoe. Would you like to make the announcement? I would love to. It's a, you know, not only is today the anniversary of the establishment of the People's Republic of China, but also it is the day that the International People's Assembly is publicly launching its website, its social media pages. Um, we at People's Dispatch are partners of the International People's Assembly. We're very proud to be partners in this process, which is, it is a platform of, you know, over 200 um, social and political organizations, trade unions, people's movements from all six continents and regions of the world, um, working together under United Common Platform against imperialism, against you know the forces that threaten the future of humanity and the future of the planet. So we invite everyone to check out these uh, pages, support the International People's Assembly and all the important work they're doing. You've been listening to um Give the people what they want, brought to you from People's Dispatch, a partner of the International People's Assembly, ipa-aip.org, and from Globetrotter. Um, great to be with you. See you next week. Uh...